Dr. Mario Molina is a past president of the American Oyster Society. He is president of Golden Shore Medical Group and the former chairman and CEO of Molina Healthcare. Dr. Molina earned a bachelor's degree from California State University, Long Beach, and earned his medical degree from the University of Southern California. He performed his internship and residency in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital, then a fellowship in endocrinology at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Molina is a board member of the Aquarium of the Pacific, Johns Hopkins Medicine, and the Huntington Library. In 2015, he was named a Modern Healthcare's list of the 100 most influential in healthcare. Okay, first of all, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Appreciate it. So when did you first become aware of William Osler? You know, I first became aware of Sir William Osler when I was probably in college. My father used to talk about Osler, and he used to quote Osler's aphorisms to me. And so I knew of Osler, but it wasn't until I started medical school that I really got interested. And about halfway through my first year of medical school, I went to the library and I got a copy of Cushing's biography of Osler. And that's when I really got to know Osler. And was your dad a physician as well? My dad was a doctor and he was mostly, he did internal medicine and then later on gravitated into emergency medicine. So that was my introduction. And you were at Johns Hopkins and were you aware of um, Osler's time there? How, How big of a footprint did he have there? So when I when I was in medical school, as I mentioned, I first read Osler's biography, got interested in that, got, got more interested in the history of medicine, and began reading about the history of medicine. And the early history of medicine for the 20th century was really what happened at Hopkins, because a lot of, of what happened in this country was spawned by the faculty at Johns Hopkins. So I was reading all of that, and then I did my internship and my residency at Johns Hopkins. So I had the opportunity to sit on the eighth floor in a little carol uh, of the library and read lots of history of medicine. And that's how I got into all of that. And of course, the Oster residency program at Johns Hopkins is named for the founder. So it, it's steeped in tradition. Great. And why do you think it's important for medical students and young physicians to know about Osler? Nowadays, medicine has become extremely technical. And uh, the science predominates. And that was different than in Osler's day. In Osler's day, the transition was being made from something that was very clinical to something that was more scientific. But Osler was really interested in the patients and in humanities and understanding people, which is something he did better than probably anyone else. I think as medicine becomes more technical, it's increasingly important for young doctors to not to forget that the whole focus of this is to help the patient. So Osler brings that all back. So he contributed so much to medicine and the scientific community, but what do you consider Osler's most important contribution? Well, I know Osler thought that his biggest contribution was bringing students onto the wards and the clinical teaching that he did. I think that that certainly has been a, a lasting legacy because our model today is very similar to what Osler uh, espoused. But nowadays, we're even bringing students into the hospital sooner in their first and second years. So I think that was a big innovation. But the other thing, I think, is his lasting interest in the humanities. And that's something that I think we need to push more because it's getting lost a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Which leads me to my next question, which is now there's so so much emphasis on technology and accelerating medicine. How do you think we keep humanity in medical education. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that half of everything that we knew at the time, and this is 
in the 19th century was probably wrong, especially when it came to medications. And if, if we took all these things out to sea and sunk them in a chest, we'd probably be better off. That's still probably true today. A lot of the things that we think we know are going to turn out not to be so. So we can't get too wedded to the science today, but people don't change. People have the same problems, the same fears, the same anxieties uh, today that they had 150 years ago. So I think it's a really important for young physicians to focus more on the patient. The technology is gonna to continue to evolve. Medicine is a process of lifelong learning, but understanding people is, is critical and we can't lose that in, in the technology. And for you personally and professionally, how has Osler inspired you the most? Well, uh, Osler was very interested in the history of medicine and in book collecting. And so one of the things Osler said is that everyone needs to have a hobby, and my hobby became collecting medical books. Um, so I have been doing that since I started. My very first book was a copy of Ralph Major's Classic Descriptions of Disease that my father gave me. And he gave me that book because he wanted me to see what the doctor's in the old days were able to do with just their senses and how they could take a history and examine the patient and really get most of the essentials. So that was the first book. My second book was Cushing's uh, The Life of Sir William Osler. I bought a first edition of that from a little uh, bookshop up in New Hampshire. And I've just been collecting ever since. So I collect Osler, I collect anatomy, I collect Hopkins and things relating to Johns Hopkins. And it just Way leads on to way when you start collecting. Yeah, and we're going to see your collection later, but roughly how many books are in your collection, would you say? <laughs> well, I collect both books and off-prints. So off-prints are journal articles that were reproduced and, and doctors would give them away to people. I have right now about 11,400 items in my collection. And you mentioned before coming across some of Osler's aphorisms. Um, do you have any favorite aphorisms that resonate the most for you? I think, I think my favorite saying that Osler had was that it was more important to know what kind of patient had the disease than the particular disease the patient had. And I think that's still true today, especially with chronic diseases, because the management of chronic diseases is really about the management of the patient. As you know, when you think of Osler, you think of equanimity. Um, why do you think that's so important for physicians or really anyone today? I think the whole concept of equanimity has in the past been misunderstood. People thought that Osler meant that we should be cold and uncaring, and that's far from it. What Osler really wanted people to do when dealing with clinical situations is to um, not let their emotions get carried away with them. If you really are going to do the best for the patient, you have to be able to control your emotions. You want to give the patient hope. You don't want to create undue anxiety or, or leave them with despair. But you really need to be able to control your emotions when you're dealing with people. Because in many cases, you're, you're dealing with life and death situations, and they're very frightened. And when did you become aware of the American Osler Society? Oh, I think I was aware of the American Osler Society when I was at Hopkins. Um, Victor McCusick was in the Osler Society, and I knew him. He was my chief of medicine. And um, Mac Harvey, who had been one of the early members, maybe even one of the that first cadre of members, was also there, and I knew him. So I had heard about the Osler Society. And why do you think the society is important? And what do you get the most out of being a member? As Osler recedes into the recesses of time, it's really important that someone keep his memory at the forefront. 
in the early part of the 20th century, everyone read his textbook. Nobody's reading his textbook anymore. It's become his history. But I think that the ideals and the concepts that he espoused are really important for the day-to-day practice of clinical medicine. So the Oser Society helps to keep that alive through our meetings, through our publications. And I also think that um, the other thing we do is we, we stimulate people to study the history of medicine, which is also something that's kind of died out in recent decades. And what would you say to a medical student or a young physician who heard about the society but was, you know, maybe on the fence about joining. Well, I'll tell you a story. Um, I thought about joining for a long time. And here in Pasadena, we had the George Doc Society. We'd meet twice a year for dinner. Someone would give a talk. And I would always run into John Carson, who was a member of the society. And in order to become a member of the society, you had to present a, a paper. So I would talk to John about it. And he would say, when are you going to join? When are you going to join? And I'd say, oh, I'm very busy. You know, I... I have to write the paper and I just don't have time. And he looked at me and he said, we're all busy, write the paper. It was one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. I have so enjoyed being a member of the OSHA Society. I so enjoy the fellowship with the other members, uh, going to the meetings, hearing the talks, but more importantly, the hallway conversations. So if you're thinking about it, take the leap. So what did I say that so impressed you? <laughs> well, I, I remember you told that story. Um, and also you said that it's the best organization that nobody's ever heard of. Oh, I'm sure that's true. And yeah, that, that really stuck with me. And, and it's totally true. You know, I think once people know about it and they're able to experience it by coming to a meeting and getting to know the other people involved and everything you talked about, then they're, you know, fully bought in. But the question is, how do we make people aware of it who should know about it and and show them how it can really enhance their, you know, not only their their medical lives, but but all their experiences. Well, how long have you been a member? Uh, yeah, so I, I actually became a member back in, I believe, 2006 after I did the documentary on Osler. And obviously, you know, I knew my dad's interest. And, um, you know, the more I learned, I just saw there were so many universal aspects that they really applied to everyone, not not just physicians and people in the medical field. But a lot of very inspiring things, you know, Osler talks about and, and apply to everyone. So, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't think I was really worthy of becoming a member, but um, I, w- I was really honored when I was asked to join. And you're a perfect example. You don't have to be a doctor to be a member of the Osler Society. Yeah. A good friend of mine by the name of Peter Kaufman runs a, a company that supplies airplane parts. Okay. And he's very interested in history and he's written a book. Uh, about business, but he also is very interested in Osler. Mm-hmm. And so what he did is he got the rights to the persisting Osler, and he has he has had thousands of copies made, which he gives away free to medical students. Oh wow! Because he believes that you know the things that Osler said, the things that he taught are universal. It's not just about medicine. A lot of it is about professionalism. How do you treat your fellow man? That sort of thing. So I think there's something there's there's something of Osler for everyone. Yeah, I agree 100%. So let's talk for a second about you had a very unique time when you were elected president of the Osler Society. But, uh, but first of all, what did it mean to you that your peers wanted you to become president of the society? It's a very great honor you know, to be elected to be president of the American Oster Society. So I was very, I was very happy that they did that. I'm very proud of that. 
And I, you know, I just, I love the Oser Society. So to, to join the ranks of people who've been president of the Oser Society is just a great, great honor. Yeah. And, and your presidency was historic in, in the sense that your term occurred during a global pandemic. So can you speak to what that was like? Yeah. So it was a very unusual year. Um, we went into the year thinking that we were going to hold the meeting in Pasadena. The American Oster Society had last held the meeting in 1990. And uh, at that time, Earl Nation sort of led the, the charge. He was living here in Pasadena. Um, of course, I was not a member at the time. But so 30 years passed. We thought it would be time to come back to Pasadena. And the Huntington Library has a great collection of medical books through the uh, Los Angeles County Medical Association, which had deposited their books there. And also George Doc's books were there. So great collection on the history of medicine, very pertinent to what we do. Sure. Um, we had everything lined up. We had uh, the Weston Hotel in Pasadena. We were arranging for buses to transport people from the hotel to the Huntington Library. And then the pandemic began to emerge. And we really didn't know what was going to happen. So I think it was in the early part of the year, probably January, February, we we're still thinking, could we hold the meeting? It was scheduled to come at the end of April. Uh, and finally, it began to become more and more apparent that we weren't going to be able to travel. We weren't going to be able to meet in person. And we didn't yet have the technology that we have now with things like Zoom to be able to do it remotely. We have since learned a lot. But at that time, we decided that we were just going to have to cancel the meeting. One of the things that was difficult about that was that we had put a deposit down and we had to cancel the meeting. And this was unprecedented. So we didn't know what to do. There, there was language in the contract that if, you know, force majeure, if there was some catastrophe of nature or something, that we could get out of the contract. But we didn't know. We didn't know if that would apply. So we went to the management at the West and we said, look, nobody can travel. We can't have the meeting here. And they said, well, we'll give you your deposit back. So that worked out well. Yeah, it, it was such an uncertain time. I remember having, you know, Zoom calls about really pretty late, even until I think February, early March, whether we should try and meet. Um, and then it, it just became apparent everyone was just going to have to isolate. Everyone has their own experience, but what was that like for you? I think it was, a, it was sort of a tumultuous experience. I mean, we were learning every day. We didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't know if we could have the meeting. We didn't know if we could uh, somehow do the meeting remotely. We really didn't understand Zoom at the time. We were just starting to, to learn about that. And so ultimately, we decided just to cancel the meeting. Uh, the following year, we had the same problem. But we knew more about the technology and we were able to hold the meeting remotely via Zoom. And I think it worked pretty well. Um, had we known about the technology, had Zoom really been, I think, up and running well at the beginning of the pandemic, we might have had the 2020 meeting by Zoom. But as it was, you know, we did the prudent thing, which was to stay home. Uh, we really didn't know what the pandemic meant or what it was going to be like or how it was going to unfold. So at that point, I think the best thing and the decision we did make was just to stay home. And the other thing is you weren't able to give your presidential address. What's going on with that? Are, are we going to be able to hear that in the future? So the presidential address, the problem with doing the presidential address is that every president wants to give an address. And so it's very difficult to have two presidential addresses in the same meeting. I think what I'll do is probably write the address and then maybe we'll publish it in the Oslarian. And that way I'm not going to steal anyone else's thunder, but I still get to, to have my my address 
published. Yeah, and with COVID obviously being a global medical crisis, I'm curious to know what you thought of the way it was handled here here in the States. Well, I, I think from a medical standpoint, I think we did the best that we could. I think that the medical system was overwhelmed. Um, we were lacking supplies. We didn't know how to handle this virus. We didn't know what it meant. We didn't know the optimal treatment. And so we were learning every day. I think the things that made it more difficult was the overlying politics. It became a political football. It shouldn't have been. Uh, but unfortunately, that's what happened. And so that, I think, created a lot of confusion. People didn't know. People thought that uh, other, other people had different agendas. And so it was a very difficult, tumultuous time. I think we could have done better. Interestingly enough, I think that one of the best sources of information was Johns Hopkins, Osler's uh, institution that he helped to found. They did a very good job of being, bringing credible information for everyone to share. And what do you think Osler's response to COVID would have been? And particularly to your point, to challenging science uh, to the, and the facts and, and so forth. Well, I, th I think if you look back at what Osler did, he was very interested in tuberculosis, which was a respiratory disease, highly contagious, for which there was no treatment. Um, he was very interested in uh, typhoid fever, Again, you know, there was no vaccine at the time, highly contagious disease, it was seasonal, had a public health component. So those are diseases that he really focused on. And I think he would have done something similar had he been alive. He would have made a study of the pandemic. At the same time, I think he was very interested in public health. And if you go back to his early days at McGill, when he was a young professor, one of the first things he was asked to do was to staff the um, smallpox ward because he'd had smallpox and was immune. So I think he would have been at the forefront of pushing vaccination because he knew how valuable that was. And in fact, he and Henry Barton Jacobs were very interested in vaccination. And Jacobs had a huge collection, which is now at Johns Hopkins, on the whole subject of vaccination. And as, as, someone, as someone extremely knowledgeable in healthcare, in healthcare delivery, delivery in, in, this in this country, how, 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 how do you think, think we could, we do, could better do better and provide, and provide better, better access to healthcare? healthcare? Well, there are several problems we're going to have to deal with. The biggest problem that we face in the United States is the high cost of healthcare. If you look at all the other Western nations around the world, um, even the closest to us, we are still twice as expensive. We spend twice as much per capita on healthcare as other nations. So that's one of the issues we've got to address. We've got to find a way to make healthcare more affordable. And you have to remember that the government pays a considerable part of healthcare through Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, marketplace. So the government has a big investment in this. If healthcare costs less, it would be more accessible and we could use the money for other things. So I think that, you know, education suffers because so much money goes into healthcare. So the, the biggest issue we have is how do we control healthcare costs? Yeah. Beyond that, I think the next thing is, you know, how do we deal with the maldistribution? Because 80% of the people live in uh, urban areas, but we still have to care for people in suburban or in the uh, rural areas. Sure. And that's a big problem. How do you get doctors into rural areas? One of the things the pandemic taught us is that we can do a lot remotely. 
And I think that uh, and Congress has acknowledged that because they're going to extend some of the things that happened during the, the pandemic to make remote access easier. But I think that's going to be an important feature in the future, that a lot more care is going to be done remotely. And as you know, there, there are other countries that have universal health care. Why don't you think we have universal health care here, here in this country? Yeah, there, I think there are a number of reasons we don't have universal health care. Our health care system grew out of the Second World War. During the war, uh, wages were frozen. And so the only way to attract someone, you couldn't pay them more, but you could offer them benefits. And, and the big benefit that started to be offered was health insurance. And so over the, the years, people have been offered health insurance as a benefit. It becomes very valuable. It's also tax deductible to corporations, but not to individuals. So it's a huge tax benefit to businesses. It's a, in a sense, kind of almost a free benefit that they can provide. Nevertheless, they struggle with that too because the healthcare costs have gone up. So I'm not sure that our present system is sustainable. The other thing is healthcare consumes almost one out of every $5 of GDP. Anything that is that big um, is hard to change. There's a tremendous inertia. People want to maintain the status quo. Whether you're a hospital, a doctor, a pharmaceutical firm, even the patients, are reluctant to change because we know what we have. We don't know what the future might bring if we went to some sort of universal health care. I think we'll eventually get there because that's where the rest of the world is. And I don't think we can continue to afford the health care that we have, especially given the outcomes that we get. I mean, we are not getting outcomes that are twice as good as anyone else. And related to that, can you speak a little bit about the, the challenges that medical students face in terms of you know, sometimes having to pay enormous student debt in order to complete their medical education. How do we keep the, uh, the applications flowing in terms of attracting more to the profession? When you look at some of the members of the Ozer Society, they will tell you that medical education was pretty affordable. I mean, Charlie's told me that it was pretty affordable back in his day when he went to Hopkins. Um, even in my day, it wasn't terribly expensive. But the cost of medical education has far outstripped inflation. And young people today are coming out with debt that is the equivalent of a home mortgage. So you're coming right out of school, you're young, you want to start a family, and you've got this huge burden. Um, and I think it, right now, it channels people into certain specialties because they pay more than others, uh, which is a shame. But I think it will also have the future effect of steering people away from medicine. Now we're starting to see schools build up endowments. A number of schools have gotten large gifts and they're doing things to make a medical school more affordable. NYU, for example, students can go to school and there's no tuition. Hopkins is working on the same thing. I think a lot of the medical schools will get there. We have to find ways to make health care, I'm sorry, health education more affordable. It's just, we just can't go on like this or we're going to lose the best and the brightest who will go off into other fields. And can you speak a little bit about the Osler Encyclopedia? I know you were very supportive of that project, uh, Charlie Bryant's book. And wh why did you think that was such an important addition to the medical world? Well, the Osler Encyclopedia touches on lots of people and subjects that were important to Osler. If you go through the index of the... Um, Cushing biography, 
essentially what what uh, Charlie did is he took many of those topic headings and expanded them into papers. And he called on the members of the Oser Society to help him write it. And so he had lots and lots of contributors who wrote a chapter or two. I participated in that as well. But it's a very handy reference book. And it gives you kind of a synopsis of what was happening in medicine from about 1880 to about 1920. So it's really a great uh, reference book. And speaking of books, I know you also had a lot to do with the Persisting Osler 5 publication. Can you speak a little about that? Yeah, the Persisting Osler. Um, initially, when the society was formed, there was a debate as to whether or not to have something like a transactions where they would publish the papers presented at the meeting. And uh, Charles Rowland was involved at the time, and he was an editor for the Journal of the American Medical Association. And the point he made was that if you want to make Osler widely known and accessible to other people, you can't hide your papers in the transactions. You need to publish them broadly in journals all over, in different fields, different specialties. And so that was the impetus for um, the wide distribution that we have of papers. But it was also felt that it would be a good idea to take some of the best papers every 10 years and bring them together into one volume. So every 10 years, there's been a persisting Osler. And uh, this last one that we did was the first one that was done without Jerry Berendus, because he had been one of the editors of the first four. So I think Charlie and I and uh, uh, your father, Rob, uh, uh, Marvin Stone, uh, were the editors. And I think it was a nice volume. And I'm looking forward to the next one in 10 years. And what was the process like for you? Well, I hadn't done anything like that before. So this was new to me. Fortunately, um, Charlie is an excellent editor. And uh, and I'll tell you, Jerry Berendus was an excellent editor because I was in the Persisting Osler 4. And he was one of the editors. And I got lots of comments back and I had to draft and redraft until I got it just right. Um, so I learned from that process. I think that having Charlie, having been through the previous editions, um, was knowledgeable and knew what to do. That really helped a lot. And we got all these papers in that people sent to us and we reviewed them. We had a committee. We read them. We read them all and we critiqued them. And I think it turned out pretty well. And finally, for, for you personally, what, what's been the best part about being a part of the American Osler Society over the years? The best thing about being a member of the American Osler Society for me has been the people that I've met and the friendships I've developed. Uh, that really is the best thing. People who share my values and my ideals, people that I've learned from. I learn something from every meeting that I go to, and it's great to renew friendships. So that's been the most valuable thing. Okay, well, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. <laughs>